Today's scripture comes from Isaiah 11, 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is God's word to us. Good morning. Hi, it's good to be with you all. So we've been, as some of the pastors at the church, talking for literally years about doing a pastor swap. And uh, we actually did it this past week. And so I, I uh, got to come here all this week and be with your leadership team and hang out in Yukon. And uh, Chad's been in Edmond, and it's been incredibly fun, incredibly encouraging. There's so much I, I really want to say. Um, but I, I would just boil it down to what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Like, my pastoral charge to you as we begin, deeply encouraged by everything that you guys are doing, is don't grow weary of doing good. Like, you, God is working in and through this congregation in such a way that, uh, man, it is, it is so encouraging to me. I got to be uh, a part of Frontline Downtown Planning in 2005. I got to be certainly a part of Frontline Edmond Planting in 2014, I think, maybe. I forget. But, uh, uh, I, and I got to hang out with lots of church planners over the years, and it's just uniquely difficult in every context in every city. I remember one time I was hanging out with a church planner from South Africa, and it was early on in the planting of Frontline Edmond, and I was just kind of like, lamenting about some of the challenge we had, what challenges we had. And I asked him, I was like, man, what's the biggest challenge you have with kids church right now? And he goes, baboons. <laughs> I was like, well, what do you mean? And he was like, well, you know, about the same time every Sunday, there's a gang of, they, they, they were in South Africa. They kind of had a church in the open air. They had a pavilion. It was beautiful. And he was like, there's this gang of baboons that comes and terrorizes kids church every Sunday. I was like, my problems don't feel so big, and it's really unique. Like, church planning is hard, and you guys are doing such good work. And, and just, I don't want to sound like overly uh, poetic, but as I was praying for this congregation this week, I really got the sense that, like, the dawn is just breaking on, on how God is going to shine in and through this place. And so I'm, I'm so thankful for you. I'm honored to be here. Um, every Sunday I say the same thing in Edmond. I want to pray for you. You pray for me, and then we're going to jump into God's word. So let's pray with one another for one another. 
Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful to be with my friends and my family, old friends, new friends. And I, I pray that I would, in a real way, be able to, to serve them today, to lift our eyes and fill our hearts with the wonder of who you are. And my prayer is our song, that, that we would stand and, and be able to say with full hearts empowered by the Holy Spirit that, that your faithfulness to us is great, that we put our faith in Jesus. As the author of Hebrews said, he's our anchor to the ground, our sure hope who never lets us down. This is the joy and the hope and the peace and the love that we have this Advent season. So would you um, help lift our eyes and fill our hearts for your glory this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. My family like suffers when I um, am preparing to preach in, in a multifaceted way, right? And how I was bugging him this week is I kept on like springing on different members of my family, whether it was my five-year-old deacon or my wife of almost 20 years, Anna, and I'd come up to him during the week and I'd say, I'm going to say one word and I want you to say the first word that comes to mind, don't think about it. And I'd say, Christmas. And then they take too long and I go, 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 you know, and they're just like, leave me alone. I'm trying to do my homework or, or dishes, but I got like a multifaceted uh, set of answers from my family. I got tree three times out of a family of six. I got Jesus's birthday, which isn't one word. It's kind of cheating, but it was a good answer nonetheless. I got, I got gifts. I ask you that same question. If you were to think about Christmas, just the word Christmas, what, what knee-jerk word comes to mind? And there's, there's practical, beautiful Words that come to mind, they're, they're profound words. Hope, peace, joy, love, lights, friends, family, all great things. But what I experienced these past few weeks as I meditated on this text and my prayer for us to experience this morning is that there is one word that we likely do not think about when we think of Christmas, but that one word is actually in a real way a key to understanding why and how we celebrate Christmas. It's like a key that unlocks how to engage in the Advent season. And that one word is promise. From the very beginning of creation, Christmas had to happen because God promised Christmas would happen. God always keeps his promises. And that's not true with me. That's not true with all of us in this room. Despite our best efforts, for so many of us, the holiday season can be extra hard and extra heavy because it's a, it's a time of the year we tend to be more aware of the, the ways in which broken promises have brought harm and hurt in our life. Marriage vows laid down trusted friendships that were wounded by betrayal, even like business partnerships that were broken by people that failed to live up to the promises that were made between partners. Each of us at times, and some of us at this very moment, are, are just deeply aware of wreckage that we live among because of broken promises. And maybe... If you're like me, some of us even carry guilt and shame this season because of ways that we have broken promises ourselves, knowing that others have hurt or been let down because we said we were going to do something, we vowed we were going to do something, and, and we broke our word, we broke our promise. The good 
news, though, for each and every one of us as we are feeling guilt or shame or pain is that Christmas isn't about our faithfulness. Christmas isn't about us keeping promises. Christmas is about the fact that God is forever faithful and that he keeps his promises without fail. And that's the beauty that Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 10 holds up in two different ways that I think is going to help us stand in beauty and power and wonder in this season of Advent. And so we're going to talk about the promises of God today, and we're going to look at it in two points. The first point I want us to see is the promise kept. The promise kept. As Natalie read in Isaiah 1 through 5. So I want to begin with a kind of a brief background with the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet and who, who prophesied to Israel at a very dark, very bleak moment in Israel's history. And although God had been really faithful, always kept his promises to his people, they, especially in this moment, were no longer faithful to him. When Isaiah arrives on the scene and he's speaking the word of God on behalf of God, God speaking through him, he's speaking to a people by and large who have walked away from the promises of God. And instead, they've, they've rejected God, but instead they have embraced looking to things of the world for their hope, for their salvation, specifically the king of a wicked nation, the king of Assyria. And as always, what happens when we, we walk away from God and we dismiss his promises, we reject our king, and we look to other things or other people or other powers for rescue or safety or security or help, just like it happens in our lives today, in ancient Israel, things went poorly, things went dark. And that very king and nation who had made promises that, that, that said he would help and protect them, he betrayed them, ended up turning against them, unleashed all kinds of darkness and destruction in the life of the nation of Israel. And so by the time we get to Isaiah 11, that's the context. And, and the picture Isaiah is painting, this prophetic picture he's painted in the book of Isaiah, leading up to this moment is a picture that's, that's something like this. Then there's literally a picture for us to look at. That, that once the people of God were like a flourishing forest. If you've ever spent time hiking, you can experience this, where you're in a, a lush forest full of life and beauty and wonder. That's prophetically a picture that Isaiah paints that say, hey, once people of Israel, this is what you looked like. This was your reality. But because of your rejection of God, because you failed to believe in the promises of God, this destruction has come into your life. And now you're not like a flourishing forest. You're like a forest that's been chopped down and burned down and now there's just stumps of devastation. If Israel once was a tree, that tree has been felled and that stump has been burned. Things are dark and bleak and there's destruction all around. But Isaiah 11 is spoken in this moment. The promise God made to his people in the middle of things looking bleak, in the middle of darkness, in, in the middle of, of devastation and saying what once was strong and grew, what once we looked upon the people of God and the promises of God that, that, that caused us to lift our eyes, now we look down and we see brokenness and yet God is saying there's coming a day in the future where life is going to spring forth. 
a rescuer, a ruler. Someone is coming into your wreckage, people of God, who have run from God and, and forgotten his promises, that into that wreckage, salvation is going to come. And this prophecy is very specific. In Isaiah 1 through 5, it says, first, this, this Savior, he will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. There's going to be a Savior born that's born of the lineage of Jesse, who is the father of King David. So out of this royal line, there once again will come a king. Second, Isaiah says, he will be a branch of Jesse's root. That word branch is the Hebrew word for Nazareth. There's going to be a son of Jesse from this place, Nazareth. The, the third thing, that it's Isaiah writes in 11, that he will be full of the Spirit. Look at verse 2 again. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. Fourth, in Isaiah 3 and Isaiah 5, there's this prophecy that the Savior, this coming King, will be righteous. He will be marked by his righteousness. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Unlike every other king, even the best kings, even like King David, and even the most treacherous, wicked kings that had ruled in Israel up to this point, they had all in their own way totally failed. And yet, Isaiah is prophesying that a king is coming who is not going to live in sin. He's not going to compromise. At every level, this king is going to be full of love and full of devotion and perfectly obey the heavenly father. Isaiah writes in verse 10 that he will be the root of Jesse. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. There's a lot there, but according to Isaiah, he's going to be, if we're paying attention, we see this, this kind of confusing promise that he's, he's a shoot out of this stump. He's a branch, but at the same time, the prophecy is saying that he is a root, a source of Jesse. This man is both base source and branch. In botanical language, we might understand it to say this promised Savior is both the beginning and the end. How can he be both a son of Jesse, someone from the line of Jesse, but also the very source? Well, because Christmas is the fulfillment of this promise. This promise being fulfilled is exactly what we celebrate at Christmas, the birth of Jesus, that he was born out of the lineage of, of Jesse. He was a son of David. He's from the royal line. He's from the city of Nazareth. And Matthew 3.16 says that the Spirit did rest upon him after his baptism, that he is both the, the beginning and the end, the shoot and the root, that he is both God and man. That's the wonder of the incarnation, that Jesus humbled himself, the Son of God humbled himself, took on flesh, didn't lay down his divinity, but picked up humanity, was actually born really human. Jesus is God's fulfillment of his promises. God made promises, and those promises are kept in Jesus. Listen to this. This is foundational to understanding and celebrating Christmas. All of God's promises are kept in Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. 
for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Paul's writing here to the church in Corinth that all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And so when we say amen in our prayer and our worship, which really means yes, so be it. It's true that rises to God for the glory of Christ. When God makes a promise... Jesus is always the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus' life shows us that God keeps his word. We can see that if we just do a, a, a quick flyover of the promises of God in the Old Testament. We have prophecies and, and patterns and, and pictures and, and, yes, promises that are all pointing us to Jesus, and Jesus fulfills each and every one of them. We've been in the, the, the book of Genesis, and we talked about the fall. Right? And where sin entered our, our world and where our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. And yet there's a promise that comes after that happens where, where God speaks to Satan and he, he gives a promise. And he, it's called the, the, the big theological word for it is proto-evangelium, the first gospel, the first time good news is proclaimed. And it's a promise God makes. And he says to Satan that there's going to be a child born one day from Eve. And you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. A baby would be born who would one day be wounded himself as he strikes a blow to the very head of evil. And promises continue to come, like just rain down on God's people. Genesis 12, 2,000 years before the first Christmas, a man named Abram, he gets a promise from God that he'd have a son, a descendant that would inherit the world, would bless the world, would rule the world in righteousness. God makes a promise to King David in 2 Samuel 7 that, that his line, his, uh, uh, his, his royal lineage, that from him a king would be born and there would be no end to his kingdom and his rule. And Isaiah is just packed full of detailed, profound promises about this coming Savior. Isaiah 7, that he would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 9 tells us that he's going to minister in the area of Galilee. Isaiah 42 tells us that he will be humble. Isaiah 53 tells us so much that it tells us what his life would be like and that he would live in obscurity and be lowly. It talks about his very manner of his death and that he would be buried in a rich man's grave. Isaiah 61 talks about his anointing. Daniel 9 gives us the, the time of his birth. Micah 5 tells us the place of his birth. Zechariah 9 tells us about his triumphal entry before his crucifixion. Zechariah 11 prophesies he's going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Malachi 3 tells us there's going to be a, a forerunner, a prophet that makes the way for him. Exodus tells us that when he dies, that not a bone in his body will be broken. Through the Psalms, there's powerful prophetic pictures of his resurrection. Psalm 22, that he would thirst on the cross, that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that at his death, people would cast lots for his clothes. But Psalm 24 powerfully describes him entering into the very glory of heaven. We could keep on going, but all of these promises that God made in great detail for the good of his people, each and every one. We look to Jesus, and Paul tells us, we say, yes, God keeps his promises. A Savior was born, the Son of God. He lived perfectly. He laid his life down 
for us. He rose defeating sin and Satan and death. Every promise that God has made is answered in the Son of God, Jesus. So what that is doing in my heart this week and, and what I want it to do in our hearts, what we're invited to, to just meditate on and like Mary, just store up in our hearts and wonder upon this week is the fact that Christmas means that we have a trustworthy God. That's a big truth. It's, it's a very personal reality for each and every one of us though, that we can trust everything God says. When God says that he can save us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, we can believe that. When God says that the Holy Spirit is going to come and work in us when we're in Christ, to, to work in and through us, we can believe that. When God says that the Spirit is at work in the church for the common good and to, to build up and encourage one another, we can believe that. When God said that true obedience, it says that true obedience is a place where joy can actually be found and that he's not holding out on us, but he wants what's best for us, we can believe that. When God says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive, we can believe that. When he says that when we, we suffer, we're not alone and it's not because he loves us, but he's actually in us in the midst of our hardship, we can believe that. When he promises that he's faithful to complete the work that he started in you. We can believe that. When he tells us that, that when we're in Christ, death is not the end, but it's the beginning of forever with God. We can believe that. And when he says he will bring a full end to Satan and sin and death, we believe him. Christmas means a lot of things, but one of the biggest things it means is that God keeps his promises. And so when we think, hey, what's Christmas about? And when we hear Christmas and the knee-jerk response might be to think trees and presents and family and all these things that are good, what I invite us to, to, to do is pray, Holy Spirit, would you strike my heart in a, in a deep and new way this Advent season that when I am, am thinking upon the meaning of what we're celebrating, that, that my heart would be overwhelmed with the reality that God is faithful and he keeps his promises. And that leads to, to the final thing I want us to see today. The second thing, the, the, the coming promise, the promise coming. Let me read again verses six through nine. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, what's this about? This passage, Isaiah's painting, this, this profound prophetic picture that the promised Savior would bring a world with unimaginable peace. I grew up in Colorado Springs, and 
there, there was this, this regular practice because we lived uh, at a cul-de-sac that ended on a mountain. And every day of the summer, it seemed, I would go outside to play in the cul-de-sac and then I would yell for my dad. And he knew what I was yelling for. He would come out with a hoe and have to kill a rattlesnake because they were just all over all the time. And I just, now as a parent, <laughs> just wonder, like, why did we not move, right? Because to, to know your child is in danger, right? There's nothing quite like that. Nothing, nothing like stirs up a, a fierce response in the heart of a mother or a father when we know our child is in danger. And Isaiah is painting this picture saying, hey, there's going to, day where, there's going to come a day where that feeling goes away. Because there's going to be such profound peace that there will be no danger. This is the peace that's promised at Christmas. Each time I think about peace and Christmas, there's one moment in history that always comes to mind. Historians call it the truce of, of 1914. And uh, the, his, the historical context is World War I is raging. It's been going on for about six months. And the first modern war in a real way, World War I, and, and you have just technology that's bringing about just devastation in new ways. You have tanks, you have barbed wire, you have firepower. And as a result, trench warfare comes about where as armies fight, they just dig in and there's this slow and brutal and violent war that's new. And that was the reality on Christmas Eve 1914 as English soldiers were facing off, facing off with German soldiers. And there was this chasm between them known as no man's land where soldiers were dying and they're dug in their trenches that Christmas Eve. But as the sun set, something began to happen. Alfred Anderson, he was a, a British soldier. He says this, I remember the silence, the eerie sound of silence. Only the guards were on duty. We all went outside the farm buildings and just stood listening. All I heard for two months in the trenches was hissing, cracking, and whining of bullets in flight, machine gun fire, and distant German voices. But there was dead silence that morning. Right across the land, as far as you could see, we shouted, Merry Christmas, even though nobody felt merry. Accounts say that it possibly began with German soldiers in the dead of night, Christmas Eve, beginning to sing Silent Night. Well, soon after what happens is German soldiers start coming out of the trenches, singing Christmas carols loudly. Eventually, British soldiers join in as the sun came up. They're laying down their arms, and they're out of the trenches, and German soldiers are shouting, Merry Christmas, Englishmen in English, and British soldiers are following suit, and they begin like exchanging gifts of pipe tobacco and chocolate, which just so happens to be all I want for Christmas this year. And, and they're like, they're giving each other haircuts, right? And they, they actually like, be, there's this famous picture of them playing football together. And they're celebrating Christmas. They shook hands and celebrated in peace on Christmas Day. John Ferguson, a British soldier again, says, we were laughing and chatting to men whom only a few hours before we were trying to kill. But eventually, the sun sets. December 26th comes, and the war was back on. Alfred Anderson, who we first heard from, he goes back to say, the silence ended early, and the killing started again. It was a short peace in a terrible war. 
that story always strikes me in, in two ways. First, it strikes me in, in a way that like is wonderful because I just am taken aback by the reality that the birth of Jesus Christ and celebrating that day, this, 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 this was something that soldiers got in trouble for. Generals were upset. It was not planned. But spontaneously, because of Christmas, because Christ was born, men who were in the throes of the most violent war the world had ever seen laid down their arms and celebrated something together. Only one thing could do that. And yet it strikes me in another way, sadly, because this story is so often a picture of how many of us experience peace on Christmas. It's powerful, but it's fleeting, it's short-lived, it's sentimental, even shallow. And so we hear that Jesus came to bring peace on earth at Christmas, goodwill towards men, and yet many people in our city in Yukon can feel like that promise is far from us. And this is what we mean. Like at Christmas time, people are going to exchange gifts and open stockings and eat food with family and friends and experience lots of joys that, that this time of year has to bring. But like humming in the background is this, this feeling that the, the clock is ticking. And the war is going to start again. The war of strained relationships or addictions or a, a growing sense of mounting debt or a, just simply the struggle between the expectations that we have for this time of year and the present reality. The reality of grief and pain or depression or anxiety or, or fear or loss. The pain of an empty seat at the Christmas table. The pain of people who were once here in years past that aren't here with us anymore. Christmas might give us a brief ceasefire from all that strife, but eventually conflict continues, fighting goes on, and that's the normal rhythms of life. Bart Ehrman is this author, scholar, and critic of Christianity, and he had a live event one time where he was sharing as to why he didn't believe in Jesus and believe the Bible, and someone asked him during the Q&A, hey, what would it take for you to believe in Jesus? And the answer he gave is, if Jesus had fulfilled his promise to bring peace on earth. With a world like ours, with lives like ours, the problem is, and the, the question is, grappling with and struggling with, hey, is, is the promise of peace a broken promise of God? Because we look at our own lives and we look at the news cycle and there doesn't seem to be peace on earth. But this is why Advent matters so much, right? Advent is a season leading up to Christmas where we do two things and often we forget to do one of these two things, but, but we do two things. We, we look back in a way where we look back to the first coming of Jesus and we remember and we celebrate that Jesus came, his birth, the, the wonder of Christmas, the, the power of the incarnation. But we don't just stop there. It's also a season where we look ahead, longing and anticipating for the second coming of Jesus, his final arrival to this earth as king. We don't just like try to drum up some kind of like empathy or solidarity with Old Testament believers that we're longing for something to come. We still long for something to come. It's living in an in-between. That's the, the reality of following Christ. Fleming Rutledge describes this in-between like this in her book, Advent, The Once and Future Coming of Jesus. 
She says, in a real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterizes life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. See, this is actually the reality that, that when we think about peace from God and we think about peace during this Christmas season, it's multifaceted. Because there is peace on earth in profound ways, the most important ways. Christmas, first and foremost, means that we have peace with God. Like, that, that we waged war against God. We rejected his rule. We rebelled against him. And when we ran from life and found death, that life chased after us and pursued us. That's the message of Christmas. And so when we are in Christ, we believe on him. We have peace with God. And that peace brings peace with one another. The, the wonder that I know is a reality here in Yukon, just like in Edmond and just like all over the world, that, that because we are in Christ Jesus and we've been added to the family of God, that we have relationships that are deep and profound with people that we would never even hang out with if we weren't in Christ. Not just friendships, but, but we are family that transcend, transcends age and interests and, and economics and backgrounds, that we have peace with each other. But Advent is also about a promise that's coming, a promise that will come that will be full and forever. And it's the promise of unimaginable, complete, extravagant, scandalous peace. And that's what Isaiah 11, 6 through 10 is about. It's a profound poetic picture of the world at peace. Probably the most profound picture of the world at peace you see in the Bible. It's like Eden, but even somehow better According to Isaiah 11, the, the same son of Jesse who would deal with our sin is also going to do away with every single ounce of corruption and brokenness in this world. And so in a really helpful way that prepares our heart for Advent, Isaiah 11 has us hold two things in tension. Verses 1 through 5, like Jesus came. We can look back and celebrate that in faith. And Jesus is coming, verses 6 through 10, and he's going to bring a profound peace, and we hold on to that. The first arrival of Jesus has already happened 2,000 years ago. The second coming is yet to come. His first arrival, he came in humility, and in his second arrival, he's going to come in unrivaled glory. In Jesus's first arrival, he came to suffer for our sins and die on the cross, but his second arrival, he's going to come to end all suffering and put death itself in the grave. And for those in Christ, this peace is coming for us. It's not sentimental. It's not just seasonal. It's not flimsy. It's, it's not just the absence of war or some internal feeling. It's something that is rock solid, that is a promise from God that we look forward to. And we remember what Paul said, that every promise of God finds its yes in Christ Jesus. And that a full and forever peace will one day come, Wolves eat lambs in our world today. Babies don't play with cobras, or at least they shouldn't. Danger is a reality. Peace isn't everywhere, but there is a day we look forward to where we say there is a, a profound peace that our hearts and our minds can't even wrap around that will come one day on this earth when Christ comes again. Scripture ends with this promise. Revelation 21 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, this is what we're invited to hold on to, to treasure, to meditate on, to pray into this Advent season. This is what this means for us. Paul put it this way when he wrote about Isaiah 11 to the church in Rome. He writes this in Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That as we long this Advent season for Jesus to come again, that what rises up in our heart, what fills up our heart, and and as it overflows, it, it flushes out in a real way our doubts and our fears and our anxieties and our, our apathy, that when we abound, overflow, and hope, we live in confidence of what God says. We live with joy knowing what God has done, and we live with endurance being able to stay faithful even when we're facing hardship because we know what our future holds. And any parent, any grandparent, any aunt, uncle, all of us know the, the power of anticipation. Christmas wouldn't be Christmas if it was just sprung on children and they didn't know it was coming. And it was just, hey, today's the day. Right? The best part in many ways is the anticipation of what's to come. The joy in the waiting of promises to be unwrapped. And that's just not for children more and deeper and more powerful for that. That's for every believer, the anticipation and joyful hope, what we lean into today, that we look back and celebrate, but we look forward longing for Jesus to come again. Let's stand and pray.